Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host, and each week, or each month, in my case, uh, we pick a new book, a new exciting book, and we interview the author of that book. And this week, I'm very happy to say we have Nicholas Walton on the show from Singapore. Yes, Singapore. Hello there. Hello, yes. And uh, we'll be talking about his superb book. (laughs) That was a little joke. Genoa La Superba, um, The Rise and Fall of of a merchant pirate superpower. I can't wait to talk about merchant pirate superpower. <laughs> and I think I want to be in one. I don't know how I do that. Do I get an eye patch with that? So anyway, <laughs> Nicholas, thanks very much for um, staying up a little bit late there in Singapore uh, to be on the show with us. That's no problem at all. Um, could you begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself? I know that you have a, a, really, a really interesting history, so go ahead. Uh, well, I've, I've, uh, it's almost 44 years of history this month, so uh, I've, I've packed a few things in. I've lived in quite a few places. Uh, I'm from the northeast of England, uh, a small town called Newcastle in a very industrial but beautiful part of the world. Uh, my parents thought it wise to bring me up in places like Kenya and New Zealand, which is why I don't have a, uh, the, the very strong accent that uh, most, of my, uh, most of my relatives have. <laughs> Um, and then I, I moved back to Middlesbrough when I was uh, when I was a certain age and uh, did most of my schooling there. And that's another very industrial part of the Northeast. Um, after school, I you know this is to this is the long version, I suppose. After school, I I, I went up to to Oxford to study and uh, ended up uh, not long after that uh, still dreaming of perhaps going into academia like a lot of the people that you interview. But I ended up going first to Vienna where I'd lived before as well, and then across to uh, to Budapest. And it wasn't long. Long after the fall of the Berlin Wall, and I ended up, uh, you know, living the dream with a with a beautiful Hungarian girlfriend, with a uh, who drove a Trabant, of, uh, of <laughs> course, um, and uh, you know, living with the the, the icebergs floating down the uh, the River Danube, and earning a very small amount of money. Um, writing for a local radio station, I thought, well, why would anyone want to do anything different to this? So I went back to Britain. And lo and behold, I ended up working for, for the BBC uh, through a, a series of very, very fortuitous uh, um, sort of events. Um, and that led me to a 14-year career where I basically specialized in foreign news. I worked for the BBC World Service, which I, I still think is one of the greatest institutions ever in journalism. And I was very, very lucky to work for it. Um, I was the BBC correspondent in a couple of places. First, Warsaw, just before it joined, just before Poland joined the EU, um, and then in Sarajevo, uh, covering pretty much all of the Balkans, from Slovenia all the way down to, uh, to Gre- uh, well, not quite Greece, Albania. And that was fascinating. I, I reported from places like Moscow just before the outbreak of the, uh, uh, of the Gulf War um, back in 2003, the winter of 2002-2003, uh, and ended up making making programs from everywhere, Georgia, 
uh, Massachusetts, actually not far from where you are, Western <laughs> Massachusetts. Um, uh, I still have my UMass T-shirt right, from that. That was, a, that was a radio Your documentary pioneers. about. <laughs> yeah. I, I still have my um, UMass T-shirt, and the uh, and that that was about uh, what do you call it? Uh, hunting in the United States. It was not long after Dick Cheney uh, emptied a, a shotgun into one of his friends' <laughs> chests, and that, that, that's what inspired that. <laughs> Even ended up down in Sierra Leone making a documentary with a with a former white um, South African mercenary. So I'd been around, and after meeting the woman that was going to be my wife, I, I ended up uh, moving to a think tank for a few years, European Foreign Policy, and that was the European Council on Foreign Relations. Um, and then uh, around that time, I, I started doing interviews for for News Books Network, uh, mm-hmm, Europe right. especially. Yeah, there you go. Did a few on Africa, a couple on journalism and so on. To be honest, I've really only paused that because uh, being out in Singapore, it's difficult to get their time zone right for Europe. And how. Um, exactly. Uh, and then after, shortly after my son was born, ended up in Genoa, where my wife is from, writing a book about the place, uh, which is the book we're about to talk about now. And we're there for a few months and then moved to Singapore, uh, where I've been doing all manner of things, uh, everything from working for Fox uh, Fox Sports Asia, uh, all the way through to writing for everyone from CNN Travel to uh, um, um, what do you call it? Uh, teaching international relations, and I've just started another book project. But that's mm-hmm. that's I suppose for the end of the uh, the interview. Mm-hmm. So so there you go. That's uh, that's where the Genoa bit fits in. It's my wife, and uh, and that's where I am now, Singapore. Uh, let me just say two things. The first is, uh, I, I'm just thinking about that moment in your life at, I don't know, 18 or 22, in which you were considering whether to go into academia or do what you did. And I'm just wondering how you feel about missing the opportunity to sit for hours and hours <laughs> and years and years and must the old libraries and then having to uh, uh, suffer the slings and arrows of an academic life. I'm sure that you Probably really regret that a lot. <laughs> well, well, not long, not long after I came back from uh, from Bosnia, I actually signed up to do a postgrad, um, a master's degree over at King's College, uh-huh. uh, London, uh, at the Department of War Studies. How long and that it was last? all about? Uh, it, it was good fun. I did it full time at the same time as working, so it's pretty intense. Yeah, but uh-huh. the um, what struck me was that academic institutions, rather than being this thing that I, I would have really enjoyed working for seemed to be just as dysfunctional as the BBC. So uh, I kind of put a – I enjoyed doing the course, and I put a a big line underneath that that, uh, ambition of mine and just continued with what I'd been doing. Yeah, don't get me started uh, on academic dysfunction. I I scratched that itch, and it seemed I was a professor, and I I resigned my position as a professor. I just couldn't really deal anymore. That's my fault, not theirs. But um, but then the second thing I wanted to say, since you mentioned the BBC World Service – Yes. I want to put another plug in for the BBC World Service. This must have been like six or seven years ago, and I was a big, I hate to say this, NPR listener. Um, mm-hmm. But then I found the BBC World Service online, and uh, I have never gone back, and I listen to it for several hours every day because it is truly the most amazing thing I have ever seen in terms of uh, radio news. It's astounding, the, the coverage that they give. It's the only place where you can actually get world coverage, and you really get it. Absolutely, and we used to – pride ourselves in the fact that if you had three headlines at the top of the hour, you could have something like, you know, President Obama's been inaugurated, and the second thing could have been some movement connected to the Polisario front down in uh, Western Sahara. It was literally, if the news was important enough from anywhere in the world, we ran it. Yeah, that's and, really true. Uh, 
you know, it, it was spectacular because you had all the different language sections backing you up and you could just put in a call to the Burmese section or uh-huh. to the Serbian section and, and get some really, really good advice, whatever the story. So, yes, uh, absolute privilege. And it was actually an ambition of mine to work there. So um, I amazing. count myself lucky. Yeah, well, yes. you should. And, you know, I've learned more about Africa, let me tell you, because Africa is just yes. a huge blank spot in the United States. <laughs> and I've learned more about Africa. I, can, I cannot begin to tell you. The only, the only criticism I have of the BBC World Service is mm-hmm. that they pay a lot of attention to this thing that you call football. And <laughs> especially English football, like the FA Cup and that other side. I don't even know what that is, um, but they spend a lot of time on that. Really a lot but of the time. Thing, <laughs> the thing is that if you're a taxi driver in Lagos, that's what you really, yeah, no, really care about. You don't care about the Polisario front or President Obama. You well, care about the football. So I, do, that, I know, that's where that is. You know, I know that Yaya Torre got passed over for African Footballer of the Year. And, so I'm, and you know, spat I'm, his I'm, dummy out of the pram. It was right. a good story. And I'm, I'm up on these things. <laughs> for American, <laughs> I consider that very metropolitan. Good um, on you, Marshall. Yeah. So um, let's talk about the book. Why did you write the book? Well... I mean, I, I was very lucky in marrying an Italian. Uh, people marry other people from rather bad places of the world all the time. And, you know, I, I came up trumps because I married uh, a woman from not just a lovely country, but also a fantastic city. And I used to visit my wife's uh, family. I used to get lost in this uh, rabbit warren of old medieval streets, uh, the oldest medieval center in Europe. Uh, and then, you know, climb up on the mountains above the the great port of Genoa and just sort of idly wish that there was a book that I could pick up and read about it. And uh, when we got the chance to to live there just after my son was born, I I looked into, was there a book that I could read about the place? And, uh, and there wasn't, there's uh, the odd travel guide, few academic books. And so, um, you know, it's not one of these big cities like Rome or Florence or, or Venice, which was the big medieval rival to, to Genoa. It's, it's a very authentic city that, that seems to have, have gone unnoticed in many ways. It's not a great tourist destination, even though there's a lot of tourists go to places like Portofino and, and the Cinque Terre and beautiful places like that just along the coast from there. Um, so the next thing I knew when we actually went there and we were living at the top of this old palazzo in the center of, uh, in the Centro Storico of, uh, of Genoa, uh, and I was sat there with a contract f- for writing this book, which was brilliant. And I, I ended up with the spookiest office possible, hidden away up a, a few dark and dingy flights of marble stairs above this church, right next to where the ghost, one of the famous ghosts of Genoa, uh, a chap called Branco Doria, who'd murdered his father and ended up in Dante's Inferno as, uh, as, as one of the major characters in there for his sins. He was meant to hang out in the building just next door. And, I, you know, it was, it was the middle of winter, so it got dark very early. And it was, it was quite a terrifying place to work. But, uh, you know, I started work on it there, and it was very atmospheric and absolutely loved it. And my wife loved the... Um, she loved the the fact that uh, we were researching the city that that she'd lived in and almost taken like a lot of people in Genoa she'd taken it for granted oh, yeah. and we came across so many fantastic stories uh, i've i've got to say i mean following on from what we were just saying about academia i'm not an academic i'm a journalist so i, I was i was approaching it from a journalist point of view uh, i love history so there's plenty of history there uh, but I'm trying to tell stories about the place as opposed to, you know, document that such and such happen, happened in 1571. I'm trying to pick out the big themes of the place and come up with the stories. And more to the point, 
draw it towards the you know the modern day and and try and find people who really represent it represent Genoa and kind of provide some kind of link with the past so for instance and this was one that my wife uh, was really delighted to have to uh, to help me set up but there's the whole book starts with a, an interview with a transsexual prostitute um uh, she was about, she must have been well into her 50s. I and mean, of course, everyone in the world at the minute seems to be talking about, uh, about transsexuals and intergender and all sorts of things. But uh, it, it seemed certainly to my wife's parents <laughs> to be quite an odd place to start a book about this city that yeah. they loved. Um, but the whole point is that this, this uh, transsexual prostitute who was in her mid-50s, she, um, she basically lived a life that could be exactly the same as what someone was living there in about 1170 or, wow. or 1570 or 1870 uh, in a magazine or one of these little cubby holes, little hobbit holes hidden away on these, on these tiny little streets zigzagging their way across the port. Um, and it just seemed like the perfect way to, to kind of describe the, this city that still lived almost like it was a big medieval city. Yeah. Um, so, so that's the approach that I took to the, to the book. So, um, you know, I don't think it'll be invo- uh, included in too many academic libraries, but the people that do pick it up, I, I, I hope, have a, a much more vivid picture than you, than you sometimes get about a, a living city. Yeah, I mean, I think they will. But let me, um, historians like to uh, start with um, old, I mean, really old, and uh, that would be, in this case, uh, geography. I'm reminded of, um, this is coming up, usually in some of the classes that I some, still sometimes teach, there's a sort of moment in February here in Massachusetts and far northern part of this uh, of North America in which I just walk in and say, why do we live here? <laughs> because, you know, it's 10 degrees outside and sleeting and there's two feet of snow on the ground. So, But uh, Genoa, you really couldn't ask for a better locale. Could you tell us a little bit about where it is and sort of how it's situated? Well, if you look at the boot of, the boot of Italy and you go to the, to the northwest corner of it, uh, just where it starts to work its way towards the French Riviera. That bit is Liguria. It's um, very mountainous. It, it kind of goes straight out of the sea, straight up into, into hills, and then very quickly falls away into the Po Valley, and you start hitting all of the big, the big rich centers such as Turin and Milan and so on. Um, so Liguria itself, is, 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 it's a bit of a mustache shape, um, just sitting on this little sliver of uh, of coastline um and if you go in one direction you hit the french riviera if you hit if you go the other direction you end up in tuscany uh pisa <laughs> florence places like that but it, 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 the geography is extraordinarily important and you talk about it being a beautiful place to live um for the first uh, thousand years of of uh, uh, after the birth of christ uh, it was actually a very, very poverty-stricken place. Uh, and in fact, it was the poverty of, of this very harsh environment. It, there was nothing really but mountains and a relatively barren sea. So the people there didn't have much. Um, but then in about the, the 930s, um, there were so many Muslim raids, Muslim uh, pirates and so on, raiding the coastline, uh, sacking villages, sacking towns, and dragging away people for the slave markets of North Africa. That basically that 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 catalyzed the people there to basically say, okay, well we've got two choices: we can be uh, victims, or we can get out there. And you know we're all used to the sea; we live there. Uh, we can go and make use of it. And within a very short amount of time. Uh, the Republic of Genoa was founded in in 1005. Uh, within a very short amount of time, 1100 or so, 
Genoa was really on the way towards being a real maritime superpower, uh, a city-state, but a superpower. You know, it, it ended up controlling interests, you know, starting off in Sardinia, where they started getting involved in the slave trade. They started getting hold of salt. They started getting hold of wheat. All of the things that their coastline didn't provide them, they went out and found. And because they were such hard people, you know... Uh, Massachusetts, I thought, was a beautiful part. Western Massachusetts, I, I would swap for living in Western Massachusetts any day. But where they were, they would have swapped anything. But it made them really, really, really hard to live where they did. And Ligurians and Genoese, basically, they were cutthroat sods. They went out, and if, if, if anyone was going to do anything that it took to, to get ahead, it was the Genoese. And that's how they became so successful. Mm-hmm. Now, I guess we can come to merchant pirate superpower. Uh, they have a nice port. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit they about do. that? Yes. Well, um, I, uh, what do you want to know? I mean, in, I suppose in the, you know, if, if, it, if it's mustache shaped, where the nostrils are, that's pretty much where Genoa is, half mm-hmm. and half either side. Um, and it's got a lovely port. It's surrounded by mountains. There's a kind of bowl shape. Uh, the bottom of the bowl now is full of these little uh, vicoli, uh, which is the, the local word for all of these tiny little alleyways. You, you, you clamber through the vicoli. You, you, hurry, you, you hope you don't come across the type of person that you really don't want to come across in those places. And then suddenly it'll open out and there'll be a medieval churchyard. There'll be a, a, a little palazzo with, you know, the typical, um, typical Italian scene with one of those weird little tricycle things that they deliver uh, fruit and vegetables to, uh, to, to out-of-the-way places. And then you clamber off, and you, you, it's, it, it's, it's only when you actually come out of the port and you start climbing up this, uh, I suppose it's, it's shaped a bit like an amphitheater, and you climb up and up and you start to hit all of, the, all of the 18th and 19th century buildings that kind of ring the port, and you start to get a sense of what the whole place looks like. Mm. Um, and then you're, you're looking pretty much south, but you've also got La Lanterna, which is... Um, it's it's from if I'm right uh, the 1500s, um, but it's it's this monumental, beautiful um, uh, what do you call it lighthouse. It's almost like an Art Deco version of a space rocket, and it's so extraordinarily tall given how old it is, and the sun always just seems to set just behind it. So it's it's a really spectacular place, and. Uh, when you go out either either direction along the coast, you end up in similarly spectacular places. You've got Portofino, for instance, which is a, a famed destination of the jet set, this beautiful little cove with, with these multicolored houses around this beautiful little port. Of course, it, it, it's full of um, uh, very rich people now and, and shops that uh, you and I can only dream of going into. <laughs> uh, and then right on the edge, uh, on the uh, far eastern edge of Liguria, when up in, in these beautiful little villages called the, the Cinque Terra, um, which are, you know, perched on rocky cliffs above little bays and harbours. Um, there were little networks of, of um, footpaths connecting them all, but unfortunately, because it's such a harsh environment, every so often, especially around this time of year, we're, we're, we're talking at the minute in early January, around this time of year, you often get the the rivers and the, the streams that come down into the Mediterranean from these mountains often turn up, turn into raging torrents. Um, so footpaths have been wiped away. Lives have been lost over, over the years. But, uh, you know, the, it's that, as I said, it's the harshness of nature that, that makes it so beautiful. Mm-hmm. Um, but also that, that drove the people out to go and make their fortunes. Yeah. I mean, I guess I mentioned the port because it's the uh, port and the ability to uh, facilitate a lot of kind of convenient shipping 
that brings wealth to yes. the city. A little bit like, um, I guess there's sort of a parallel with Marseille. Um, mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't know much about Marseille, but it is a very nice port too. And it's not far from Genoa, really. Uh, no, it's not. It, it, it's not. And in fact, if you go along to places like Nice, where Garibaldi was born, uh, the great uh, hero of the Risorgimento, uh, he is, in effect, Ligurian. Uh, mm. the, the border there is, is, is not as hard and fast as someone might have thought. And Monaco, which have, is just on the French side, that started off as, a, as, as, as part of the Republic of Genoa until uh, a rogue and typically piratical family um, uh, the, the Grimaldis, um, some of them headed off and, and they captured the Rock of Gibraltar and turned that into a, a, a little pirate base. So, yes, and, and Marseille is a little bit further. But I think that by the time you hit Marseille, you, you're, you know, you're, you're not far away from the Rhone Valley and, and so on. So it's not quite as harsh. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's, uh, I won't take anything away from the beauty of southern France, but it doesn't have that, that harshness. I mean, literally in Liguria, you have sea and you have mountains uh-huh. and uh, just to give you an idea, if you drive from Genoa to the French border, say you're on the way to Marseille or Nice or, or Monaco, you will go through over 100 tunnels just wow. to reach the border. Uh, so you're constantly going in and out of tunnels. You, the road is just knocked straight through all of these mountains to get there. So it's quite hair-raising because the Italians are not noted for being the, 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 the best and the slowest drivers on earth. Uh, <laughs> but if, if, if ever you fancy you know, putting your life to the test and, and your driving skills, uh, I, I recommend that. Yeah. No, I think I might, actually. That would be good. If I could get like a Porsche 911 to tool around, but I don't think anyone's going to give me that. Um, so the, the book is called The Rise and Fall of a Merchant uh, Pirate Superpower. Um, so it has an arc, a narrative arc. Mm-hmm. So could you talk a little bit about the rise of it? You already have a bit, but um, I guess at the moment at which this enormous – when you build an enormous lighthouse like that, you must have a lot of dough. <laughs> I mean, that's an expensive project. So how did they yes. get all that dough? Go ahead. Well, as I, as I said, I'm, 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 I'm not going to give the definitive historian's version of this. There's uh, a few very good books out there that, that people who are more interested in, in the details of the story can, can pick up. But broadly speaking, uh, you had this place where they were being raided by, the, by Muslim slavers. They realized they had to get out there. They started thinking, well, hang on, if we go to Sardinia, we can get wheat and slaves and salt. And then they started linking things up because they were fantastic seamen and they were also – absolute stop at nothing people so they were you know they were on the very very thin cusp between being merchants and pirates and this was an age where you had several city states really really coming to the fore you had pisa which was the first big rival uh and uh um and uh genoa it, it, sometimes it, it uh it joined forces with pisa sometimes it, it went head to head against pisa um, and then there was Amalfi. There was the uh, on the other side of the peninsula in a similar place at the top of the boot, but in the Adriatic Ocean, uh, Ad- Adriatic Sea. Of course, there was Venice, Venice which yeah. itself was was starting to link things together. And this was an age where you know the the Roman Empire had been long gone. The uh, the Muslim world was really starting to to knit itself together, and um, a new medieval economy was starting to rise. You ended up uh, over the over the next few hundred years with big manufacturing centres and um, starting to establish themselves. For instance, in in places up in the Po Valley, and of course in places like Tuscany, you know Florence and and some of the places around there. Uh, then you had other other commodities such as wool. Uh, um, coming down from Flanders and eventually England, places like that. You had 
all of these different commodities and, and goods and the people who were able to get things to other parts of the Mediterranean and to link up with the East were the ones making the money out of this. Uh-huh. Uh, now, this was all, also the era of the, the Crusades. You had the first crusade uh, where, where several uh, prominent uh, Genoese families took part. They were given very, very handy concessions. Um, the Embriachi family or Embriachi, I, 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 my wife always tells me off for pronouncing it wrong and I can never work out which way it is. Uh, was, uh, there was a, a period when, uh, sorry, just as, a, as, a, as, a, as, a, as a, an anecdote to chuck in, uh, there was so much internecine warfare within Genoa, so much backstabbing and so on, because this, as I said, it was full of very violent, desperate people. Um, that at one point they even you were using siege engines against other families within the city walls. I mean, this was, uh, you know, you, you, if you went outside the area of your family, you basically got a knife through the shoulder blades. Um, and they started building these enormous towers to, to combat each other. And the only one that um, eventually there was a statute to, to clamp down on all of these civil wars and the, uh, that basically said you're not allowed a tower above a certain height. The only one that was allowed to remain high and is there still today uh, belonged to the Embriachi family, and that was simply because they had played such a prominent role in the First Crusade. So leave that aside. So you, you're linking up with the, you know, with the end of the, um, with the Muslim world, with all of the stuff coming out of the Middle East, out of China. Eventually, because of rivalry between, for instance, Venice and Genoa, Genoa starts to head up into the Black Sea. This is around the time that the, uh, the Byzantine Empire is also there. It's running into trouble. And the story of Venice and Genoa is also very deeply linked at this point with, with both the, the, the gradual decline and fall of places like Constantinople and the, and the Byzantine Empire, but also eventually with the rise of the uh, Ottoman Empire. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and Genoa has ever uh, played a, a, a spectacularly morally am- ambiguous role in, <laughs> in, in both of those. Um, and so the Genoese ended up, uh, for instance, bringing commodities like fur and slaves down from the Black Sea, you know, the southern edges of Russia and what, what is now Ukraine and, and the Black Sea coast and shipping them all over the place and, you know, returning with, uh, uh, for instance, uh, alum from the island of Chios just off the, uh, just off the Asia Minor coast. And, and they, they, a bit like the British Empire a bit later on, they weren't land empires they were networks of of little you know concessionary ports uh both venice and genoa for instance ended up with little quarters in constantinople um mm-hmm. that they used to to help trade through the byzantine empire um and one thing that that, that kind of demonstrates genoa's role in in the development of this uh, of this economy that that had ro- risen up in the in I wasn't quite a vacuum in the um uh, in the absence of the Roman Empire, but, you know, it had had a a few centuries where very little happened, if you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. Uh, But one thing that really illustrates it is that um, the the Genoese ended up with a few concessions just off, um, just on um, uh, Crimea and on the Black Sea coast. Mm -hmm. And at one point, uh, one of these concessions, the uh, port of Kaffa, is being besieged by the Mongols. Uh, this is 1347. Mm-hmm. And uh, during the siege, and in fact, it, they end up with some Venetians even coming to, to, uh, to take shelter with them. And when Venetians actually take shelter with Genoese, they're, they're sworn enemies. You know that the Mongols must have been pretty bad. And at some point, the Mongols start dying off. 
And of course, we know now, looking back, that this was the uh, this was one of the big plague uh, uh, incursions into this part of the world. But what turned this into the Black Death was Genoese trade routes. Mm-hmm. Um, the Mongols start uh, firing catapults with dead bodies over the uh, over the city walls to try and infect the people inside. And uh, you know, that's what people say caused the. Uh, Caused the Black Death to to uh, cause the plague to take root among the, the Genoese, but it's more likely to have been rats coming in with fleas on their backs, bur- burying under the um, under the the uh, um, uh, battlements. And then a few Genoese basically managed to break out in their boats, and they they call in first at Constantinople, and then they go a bit further into Europe, and then they call in um, just off Sicily, and then they, they they end up getting it all the way back into Genoa. And if you look at how the whole of the, the Black Death spreads across Europe, it, it basically starts off from these nodes and basically fans out. Mm. Uh, and because the, the, the medieval economy had reached this point where things were linked, obviously it's, it, it was a very, very uh, contemporary version of globalization. It, it, it's nothing like what we have today. But that's what spread the Black Death through the whole of, um, through the whole of Europe. And uh, as we know, cost uh, the lives of a third of the people on the continent, especially in those built-up areas such as such as flanders and 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 such as um as uh tuscany um so the genoese were to blame for that and and i suppose that that really exemplifies how they played such a central role in in the development of of the um of the medieval economy Mm -hmm. uh there is a lot of decline um the you know they're just a city state you have uh, for instance the spanish and the french start getting their acts together and you know then it, they really start putting pressure on city states like genoa uh genoa of course is is busy fighting the hell out of uh the, the venice uh, at the venetians um and then you've got the threat from from the south and from the east from uh, the barbary corsairs uh, and then the barbary corsairs are kind of co-opted into the ottoman empire as their naval arm so uh genoa really s- finds it difficult to to survive as a as a very independent state and and then you have the the uh, appearance of of uh for instance, there's this fantastic, probably the most important figure in Genoese history, uh, a grand an- admiral and a mercenary, of course, called uh, Andrea Doria, uh, a giant of a man, uh, phenomenally uh, innovative, uh, lived to the age of 91, which just gives you an idea of just what a remarkable life he lived. Um, I, I actually, maybe it's a cheap line, but uh, uh, this historian in Genoa told me that this was what he saw Andrea Doria as. Uh, and I thought it was such a such a good comparison. I kept it in. Uh, he, he called uh, Andrew Doria the Steve Jobs of the Mediterranean because he was always he he wasn't just he he had vision. He wasn't just somebody who tinkered around the edges. He did that with tactics on board galleys, and this was the great era of galley warfare, uh, spectacular time um, and quite a bloody time. And he he did a lot there. But what really set him apart was was his vision for what Genoa could be, uh, and. Just to give you an idea of the type of thing he did, at one point he was the mercenary commander coming in, conquering Genoa again for the French. And when he was there, he thought, hang on, I really need to throw in my, my lot with the Spanish. So he waited for his contract to come up, went outside the city and then came again and conquered it for the Spanish. And basically threw his lot in with Charles V, uh, Carlos Quinto, as they call him in uh, in Genoa. And this was the age where the explorers were, were pushing their way across the Atlantic Ocean. And Genoa ended up uh, making an awful lot of money 
as the great banker to the Spanish Habsburgs. Um, and so much of the bullion, especially the silver that came into Europe from the Americas, all ended up coming through Genoa, which turned its, uh, you know, turned its innovative nature into financial innovation and then financed all of the Habsburg Wars, um, which was great, of course, until the Spanish start going bankrupt. Right. And then the, the, the Genoese really were facing a time of, of decline. Um, so that's a, a bit of a potted history, but it gives you a sense of, 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 um, of how this little place was, was clinging limpet-like onto, onto some semblance of life as the world changed around it. Um, I, I'm really glad that you mentioned uh, slavery because uh, Americans uh, tend to think that um, proto-Americans, let's put it that way, invented it um, or, <laughs> or simply thought one day, geez, it might be a good idea to have slaves. Um, mm. <laughs> it was part of the. It was part of life. Yes, it was, it was definitely it, it, part of life. It was an enormous part of life, and you know, you, you, I, I'm sure that there are some in Europe that would love to to point the finger at the Muslim world and say, "Oh, but that's where it all came from." Of course, it wasn't. Uh, it was part of life under the Greek Empire, the Roman Empire, the Persian Empire, uh, and you know, this is this is actually a very big bugbear of mine about about how people. Um, you know, they focus in on a small detail of the relatively recent past, such as um, uh, the the triangular trade in in Atlantic slaves, uh-huh. or such as, for instance, you you have all of this dreadful relativism in universities at the minute um, across the across the, what seems to be the whole of the Western world. And at the minute, there's a a, a dreadful rumpus in my old uh, university, Oxford, about the statue of of Rhodes, yeah, the great yeah. the great British colonial. Um, who uh you know Rhodesia is named after him but he was the great uh, colonial pi- uh, imperial uh, pioneer in southern africa and a lot of people have taken exception to this and and they say that they feel Im- uh, oppressed whenever they go near his statue and they've demanded that it all gets taken down but i if you start on this you'll <laughs> yeah. never end no, you you'll never, never end you'll be, yeah, no. you will be tearing down the pyramids yeah. because the pyramids were built yeah, with slave labor almost everything in the world was built on some form of coerced or coercive labor uh if you go back long enough yeah. i was listening to a, a very there's a, a bbc radio 4 series called in our time uh-huh. yeah, and I know it. history yeah. archi- it's brilliant they've got a history archive there was one program all about unix now unix the last unix i believe uh, gosh, I can't remember. I was listening to it when I was in Hong Kong about a year ago, and apparently it was only you know a, f- a handful of decades ago. But eunuchs were a big part of of life, and you know, mm-hmm. men hoping or, or their families hoping that they would get on in life so that they didn't have to eat you know the square root of nothing, which is what <laughs> most peasants in, in life have had to do, uh, especially in a in such an unforgiving place over the over the nineteenth and twentieth century as China. You know, they used to hand over their one of their children, one of their sons, and their son would undergo the type of operation that would make us wince. Yeah. Um, yeah. In fact, the monasteries in in Flanders used to do this for the great eunuch trade in in uh, in Europe at the time that that Genoa was a big slaver. Uh, so you know these things art throughout history and if you start to 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 try and um work out you know if you try and draw a line between present day suffering and and what's gone on in the past it just becomes a very fuzzy line indeed i mean i mean Uh, it's really as conventional or was as conventional as let's say wage labor is to us you're going to hire somebody to mow your lawn or trim your hedge 
Yes. And that's pretty much the way they thought about slaves. You're going to buy a slave. You're not going to buy a slave. They're kind of expensive. Should we splurge and get one or not? It wasn't a moral yes. question. Yes. Uh, and, and of course, treating them badly was, was often not just a, an option. It was an obligatory thing because that was the way that it was accepted that you got most work out of them. And, you know, it's an absolute filthy business. I, I, I sometimes wonder how many people realize just how damn lucky they are to be living yeah. in, you know, the 21st century. Yeah. I'm not saying life is easy for everybody. Far from it. But my goodness me, life has been pretty damn shoddy for a lot of people. Yep. <laughs> you know, not, I mean, even the rich people. Yeah, uh, you, you can. I know that that you're a big, um, you're, you're 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 an expert on on several uh, early modern early Russia. Early modern Russia, it, yeah, that's right. Yeah, well, I mean that's fantastic if you're one of the richest people. But my goodness me, it still gets cold, and if you get toothache, you've got toothache, no matter how rich yeah. you are. Well, I mean it's interesting so, because you, you mentioned uh, I, there's very rarely connections to Muscovy or early modern Russia in the interviews I do, but there is one that you did mention and. The Muslims had all the money in the early modern period, of course, uh, and they were also the great merchants. But one uh, peculiar thing about Islam is that you cannot enslave other Muslims. So they had to mm. go elsewhere to get slaves. Um, and again, mm -hmm. this was completely conventional. It would be like uh, – it's like outsourcing. It's like Americans going to China for cheap labor. So what they did was mm. they went to um, the Black Sea. There were lots of Russian slaves, and they mm -hmm. were sold by Italians. Now, that wasn't mm -hmm. all the Italians did. I mean, we can't, you know, that's not very nice. The way that they're often remembered, usually remembered today, is if you go to the Kremlin, you'll see that much mm -hmm. of the Kremlin was built by Italian architects <laughs> who were from this Black Sea area, which had gotten wealthy because of these Russian slaves that they were sold to Muslims. So, <laughs> well, most, most, of the, most of the Italians on the Black Sea were, were Genoese. So, uh, yeah, so you go to the... You go to the yeah, I was just saying these. You know, the Russians. People think of Russia as an ancient place, and this is sort of, everything is autochthonous, and everything's indigenous, and so on and so forth. But it's really quite. If you, if you look at the Kremlin with, you know, Italian eyes, it's very clearly a Renaissance building built by Italians. <laughs> mm, yeah, it's, it's a beautiful place. It's a beautiful place. <laughs> yeah, a sort of funny connection there. So, um, let's try to move. We're we're we're. Uh, we're not running out of time, but we're, we're a little bit short on time. <laughs> we're disappearing up a few cold sacks. Yes, we are. So um, this is all very fascinating. So tell us a little bit about modern Genoa. And then it became big uh, uh, – it became a center of shipbuilding trade, right, in the 19th century? Yes. I mean, I mean th th that really jumps uh, quite a long way ahead. Uh, I suppose the, just to run through kind of what happened in the meantime, mm -hmm. you have a lot of explorers. You have people like Christopher Columbus. He was Genoese. And, you know, uh, I think that he – quite scared the Spanish with his interest in slaves when he first turns up in Hispaniola. Uh, he was very Gen uh, Genoese, even though he, he didn't live much of his life there. Um, and then you end up with uh, Genoa being a bit of a backwater. But because of its position, it had a lot of very, very well-known grand tourists coming through. It had a, there's a few streets in, in Genoa. Uh, there, there's, there's one street in particular that inspired uh, Peter Paul Rubens, uh, to write a whole, you know, to do this glorious illustrated book of what he thought was pretty much the ideal street. And he, he went back and he, he built his, uh, his own home based upon what he saw in Genoa. So, you know, there was still money knocking around, uh, but the whole place was largely in decline. Uh, you have Charles Dickens, for instance, give some of the most extraordinary vivid uh, descriptions of what this place is like when you start hitting the, the 17th, 18th, 19th centuries. Um, I remember the one thing that he said, he, he described the smell of parts of it being a bit like uh, uh, old cheese kept in warm blankets, uh, which, 
<laughs> which when you see when you see the you know the vicarly today they, they they look so medieval and obviously they don't smell half as bad as that but it doesn't take much imagination to imagine what it must have smelled like um so then then i suppose the next stage that you had was you had the uh, the risorgimento the coming together of of uh, of italy was done under four main people. First of all, you had Garibaldi, the great dashing hero. As I said, Ligurian, from, born in Nice. Uh, you also had uh, Mazzini, who was the big philosophical guy behind uh, the, the, re, uh, the Risorgimento, and he was born in Genoa. Uh, and then you had a couple of people from up in Turin. You had uh, Victor Emmanuel, the monarch, uh, the Pied, uh, Piedmont uh, monarch, and you had Cavour, who was his prime minister, who was the great political schemer. Uh, so basically, uh, Genoa played an enormous part of, of um, uh, as the midwife of, of modern Italy. And uh, famously, when Garibaldi set off for the south with his thousand men, he set off from one of the one of the suburbs of uh, Genoa called Quarto, um, where there's a big statue there now. Um, so basically, Italy all comes together. And uh, the, the next part of the story is that Italy comes together, but it's still a dreadful place to live. And in fact, in many ways, it's worse for a lot of the southerners. So you start off with this enormous uh, flood of people escaping Italy and heading off across the, the Atlantic to the United States, to Brazil and to Argentina. Um, and a good many of them went through uh, Genoa because it was obviously such a major port. So uh, Genoa then starts playing this enormous role in the great uh, transatlantic uh, migration story. And especially when you go to places like uh, San Francisco, uh, you come across a lot of uh, people with Genoese ancestor, mm -hmm. ancestry. I think one of the most prominent is Nancy Pelosi, mm. uh, the Democrat yeah. uh, politician. I think she's even been back there to pick up some kind of recognition. <laughs> uh, the Bank of America, for instance, was set up by a, a Genoese chap uh, after the San Francisco earthquake, I believe. Um, and uh, Del Monte, I heard, was also another Genoese uh, yeah, set, Del Monte, uh, set, yeah, set up. Yeah, Del, Del Monte fruit. So, you know, the Genoese were pioneers. Uh, in fact, um, Garibaldi himself, uh, he did a lot of uh, smuggling down in Brazil uh, with a lot of Ligurians. And at one point, he was even a candle maker in Staten Island, huh. uh, follow, following the same path of, you know, going across to the United States or what? Um, what was uh, what was the uh, it was the United States of course it wasn't a colony by that point um, to to make their fortune and he of course got bored came back and incited revolution and looked extremely dashing as he did it um, so so uh, Genoa then part, becomes part of the industrialization of Italy uh, the Suez Canal opens up. Uh, in I think about 1861 or something like that, uh, or no 1869, and that then revitalizes the Mediterranean. The British realize that that there's such a lot to be gained from uh, Genoa as a as a very good port. Uh, they turn it into a coking station. A lot of uh, uh, things such as insurance and other services uh, services start to develop in the port. Links up with. Turin and with Milan in what they what they call the industrial triangle and it's it's the shipbuilding hub um, and just to go back as you mentioned early on in the interview about football uh, the English actually introduced football to <laughs> to Italy through Genoa and in fact one of the city's two teams uh, which is the oldest in in Italy is called is still called today uh, the Genoa note the English spelling not Genova uh -huh. as fans yeah. would say Genoa Cricket and Football Club. So, uh, so you know, it, it plays a pioneering, pioneering role, role there. Um, and it, uh, when the fascists take over, you know, the, 
being able to stand toe to toe with you know the great industrial powers such as Britain and France and the United States is a is a great matter of prestige for Mussolini. So, for instance, you have the great liner, the Rex captures the Nastro Azzurro, the uh, blue ribbon for the fastest crossing of the Atlantic. Um, and that was in the uh, 1930s, 1933, I think. So, so the, you know, it was a, a, a place that continued to be one of the great hubs of, of Italian industry. Um, not so much touched in the Second World War, uh, although Ezra Pound, the poet, broadcast some pro-fascist propaganda from a, a small town just along the Ligurian coast from Genoa until the uh, uh, American military intelligence invited him in for a few chats. Um, <laughs> And then in, in the post-war period, and this, this is part of, you see, for me, with an Italian wife and a half-Italian son, this is, this is a very important part of the story for me, uh, where Italy is now and where it's going. After the Second World War, obviously, Italy was still a very poor country, um, and the West was determined that it wasn't going to turn communist. Um, this was the year of the Marshall Plan and so on. Uh, and Italy had an astounding economic takeoff after the Second World War. Uh, it, at one point, I think it spent a decade or two, and it was the third quickest growing economy in the world, or fourth after places like South Korea and Japan. Uh -huh. um, and by 1986, uh, there was an event called the Sorpasso, where it overtook the British economy to become, uh, would that make it the fourth biggest in the world? And, mm -hmm. you know, they believed that it was, you know, obviously you had all the white goods, you had refrigeration, you had Fiat cars, you know, um, Pirelli tires, all of these things were being churned out. And Italy looked as though it really was, you know, on the up. Um, and the one of the chapters of the books towards the end uh, dwells on this period, you know, the late 80s and the early 90s. And again, to return to that subject of football, soccer, I remember the heyday of Italian football, which was in this period. Uh, and it was the richest league in the world. You had every single um, glamorous player just yearn to play for an Italian team. And Sampdoria, who were the kind of second team of Genoa, uh, ended up with a succession of, of very glamorous people playing for them. They were quite a small and fashionable team beforehand, but they ended up winning the league and, and reaching the European Cup final in this period, 1991-92. And that was kind of the way in which Genoa represented the post-war miracle and its peak. Mm -hmm. And of course, now we see how Italy, you know, the, the Euro crisis, which I'm sure a lot of people have heard of and, and understand that Italy is a, is a country with uh, very, very serious problems for the future. When we lived there, we had a lot of, a lot of people, the younger people that we met, uh, anyone with any talent seemed to be desperate to get out, to, to get to uh, places like Britain and the United States and Australia to see if they could seek their fortunes somewhere with more promise for the future, which was quite heartbreaking. You have this rabble-rousing politician called Beppe Grillo, former comedian, And his uh, three-star movement, um, um, uh, sorry, five-star movement, uh, slip of the tongue, um, ended up capturing a third of the vote uh, in recent elections going back two or three years. So, so basically, uh, Italy now is a, is a place with a lot of questions over it. And, and again, I think that, that Genoa kind of exemplifies what Italy is about. It, it's not a tourist spot. It's not Florence or Rome or... or Uh, or or um, or Venice, uh, it's somewhere with a real life and with a real history, and and that's kind of where I end up uh, in the book. Just asking, well, well, what does this mean for the rest of Italy? Uh, what does this mean for the Italians? And what does this mean for Genoa and its future? Uh -huh. I mean, well, the reason I originally mentioned the shipbuilding industry is, is it, it seems to me the city made a very successful uh, transition 
uh, from basically a merchant republic to an industrial republic, uh, which not every city did. Yes, I mean, <laughs> I, 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 I think it's also fair to say that there were a few a, a few grim centuries in between. Yes, it wasn't, there it were, wasn't yeah, a, absolutely. It, it wasn't, I mean, I'm living in Singapore at the minute, and they've just hit 50, their 50th anniversary as, as a quite astonishingly successful place that's transitioned from one part of, from one economic level to the next, and uh-huh. is now the third richest place in the world. So, um, you know, it's nothing like as smooth as, as, as it could have been. And yeah. I think that... Uh, you know, it, it it still remained a very very grim place to be for many centuries, yeah. and uh, you know the the heyday going back to the uh, you know the eleven hundreds, twelve hundreds, thirteen hundreds for many years seemed a long 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 way away. Uh huh. Let, let me uh, we're we're really out of time, but let me ask a couple sure. more questions just because I'm interested in their sort of contemporary affairs. Number one, um, is there a, a what, what, is there a Muslim population in Genoa? There is a small one, um, but this is changing all the time. Um, yeah, w- th- thanks to what's happened in Libya, you've got an enormous number of, of uh, North Africans, but not just North Africans, you know, the, uh, uh, Nigerians, uh, Senegalese, many of whom are Muslim, coming north and trying to get across to Italy because it's such a, a, yeah. a short jump off point. So you've got, you've got many, many more people coming up through Italy. This has obviously been overtaken by the Syrian story coming through Greece, but it's still very, very significant. Uh, and that's changing things. Now, M- Genoa itself, being a port, has always been much more open, much more multicultural, um, because Italy generally isn't that type of a place. It's not yeah, like going to London or New yeah. York. Um, you've got uh, significant uh, parts of the city where you get a lot of, the, a lot of Muslims and, and other immigrants. And to be honest, they're quite well integrated there. Uh-huh. Um, you know, I started off talking about this transsexual prostitute. You go around, and, and it seems as though one street is just Senegalese prostitutes, the next one is Bolivian prostitutes, and so on. So I suppose that that's a Genoese scale of how well integrated different populations are when they have their own sections of prostitutes. Yeah, I, I was thinking about Marseille again, which I think is—I I don't know for a fact, but it, I, I think it's the most diverse place in France. I, I'm yes, sure but of, of course, that, the French—the uh, the French had Algeria, yeah, and that's right, yeah. and Morocco, etc., which that's is right. the big difference in the two. So is there any um, – uh, have the Genoese had any, uh, I don't know what to say here, interaction role with, I don't know, uh, the the, um, the immigration crisis from Syria and elsewhere, Libya, these places? Well, a lot of these people have gone through, but, you know, um, on their way, for instance, to France and, and, and up through uh, Austria and, and so on into Germany and, and Britain and so on. Uh, but significant populations have gone before, and I – I do get the feeling as though they're still very much apart in a way that they aren't in. Uh, I'm talking about migrants in general. In general, uh, it's still a not as multicultural a place as as other parts of of Europe. Uh, but on an Italian scale, Genoa does have significant populations that are fairly well integrated. Uh, one of the guys that I mentioned in the book is um, is a chap called Rashid, who's a Moroccan. And he's a, what they call a, a fruity vendolo, um, a fruit and vegetable seller. And uh, we, we always used to go in there. And he's one of those absolutely lovely people who puts a smile on your face whenever you buy some tangerines off him. And, and uh, we asked him why he lived where he did. And he, he'd actually tried to live outside the center. But because he comes from 
Morocco, which is the, the country where you have Marrakesh, Marrakesh and Fez and Meknesh and all these other medieval places. He felt as though he had to live in the very center because it made him, made him feel as though he was part of this enormous bustle that he was used to. Uh, and he's, you know, someone like that is as well integrated as, as, um, anyone that you'll ever come across. So, uh, so to some extent, yes, but everything, you know, it, it's, it's, it's a, you, you're looking at little details of the big picture. Uh-huh. And then finally, of course, Genoese football. We have to mention that they've kind of fallen on hard times, haven't they? They're not they're well. They're, they're doing very well. They're both in. Uh, they're both in Serie A. Yeah. Genoa. Are and, they really? Uh, they're in Serie A. And, and really? I didn't know uh, Genoa that. Are, <laughs> Genoa are in all sorts of trouble and look as though they they might go down. Uh, really? Sampdoria has just beaten them. Uh, in the what they call the the Derby della Lanterna, uh-huh. named after the lighthouse, uh, which my father-in-law was very pleased about, <laughs> uh, um, and I, 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 I went along to the Genoa Sampdoria Derby just before I left, and it was one of those things that just makes you feel good about football. It was a beautiful occasion. Oh, yeah. The fans mixed together. There wasn't any of the nastiness that you that you do get in some places. I mean, if you go to Roma. Uh, Roma Lazio, you'll end up with you know, little puncture marks all over you, right. all over you. So uh, there, there was a real sense that uh, you know in Genoa they get on with their own thing, and there's a bit of rivalry. But you know they'll see it on the football pitch. They'll blow up fireworks and hold up banners and all sorts in the ground. But you know it's friendly, yeah. and it was, a, it was a lovely way in which to to leave That's the great. city to, to go to the the, the the derby. And of course, Sampdoria won one nil. So. Uh, my father-in-law was delighted about yeah, that as well. So, uh, I didn't know they were in yeah. Serie A. I didn't, I wasn't both of them are, and uh, both of them did very well last year, and right. this time uh, not so well. That's good. Well, anyway, okay, enough about football uh, the, <laughs> <laughs> or soccer, as we say over here. So I want to thank you very much for writing this book. It's fascinating. We've been talking with Nicholas Walton about Genoa, La Superba, The Rise and Fall of a Merchant Pirate Superpower. It's a terrific book. We always close our interviews, uh, as you know, or at least I close my interviews, by asking people what they are working on now. So I will ask you that now. What are you working on now? (laughs) Among the many things that a a freelance journalist, writer has to work on, uh, I have just agreed to uh, write a book uh, on Singapore. Uh, So it's going to it's going to hopefully be a journalist's book about the place, you know, with a lot of color, all of the things that you never quite knew about the place. But because Singapore has such interesting questions about how this tiny little red dot in, in Southeast Asia uh, not only has managed to, to survive, but has become, you know, the, the world's third richest place um, without any natural resources other than its people. <laughs> um, it, it's, it's quite an extraordinary story. This this last year, the great architect of this, Lee Kuan Yew, died, and we also had the 50th anniversary of, of, pardon me, of, of independence. So this is a time where I think it's very, very valid to ask those big questions, um, and uh, I think that the place is really quite fascinating. So I'm hoping that it's going to be a, not just a good read, but also uh, beg quite a few questions about, uh, about how small city-states, um, such as Genoa, Singapore, and so on, uh, have a place in this world of ours where we seem transfixed by size. You know, it's all about the size of China and so on, big trade deals. But uh-huh. uh, for, for this little place to have done so well, it's, it's, it should be quite a good story. Yeah, well, I mean, that sounds fascinating, and we'll have you on again. I have to ask this question. Do you have any, <laughs> do you have any idea where you're going to go next? It depends upon <laughs> – you, you see, this is, this is the great secret. My wife has a great job. <laughs> she earns – 
quite a bit of money, and uh-huh. that meant that, uh, that uh, well, it, it's not a massive amount of money, but, you know, it means that I've been able to start to develop a career because you try and get two people with sure. careers and try and keep them together, and, and, you know, you have to live in London or New York or something like that. Yes. And we're, we're lucky. We, we can, you know, two years, once the contract's over, we can really start to look around and decide where to go next. Yes. I mean, I can... I mean, I can agree with the two career thing because I, you know, I, um, I won't say I gave up my career, but I, um, I realized that uh, it, it took uh, it t- raising children takes a lot of effort, and uh, yes. two careers is really that's a tough one. Yeah. <laughs> I, mean, I work, but but uh, I kind of work at my own pace. <laughs> yes, and to the point, you're you're a bit like me. You can actually. You can carry your work wherever you go, thanks yeah, to the magic exactly of the internet. that's exactly right. That's exactly right. So, th- so that's hopefully how we'll do it in the future. But, you know, never say never. We, well, we could end exciting. up anywhere. Yeah. My vote is for Western Massachusetts. <laughs> <laughs> I got to tell you, that would be hilarious. I would love to have you out here. It would be terrific, wonderful. <laughs> All right. Well, yeah. uh, Nicholas, thank you very much for being on the show. Okay? Uh, that's no problem at all. Okay. Thanks, Marshall. All right. Have a good day. Bye-bye.